Welcome everyone. I'm Jeffrey Goodman, Director of Marketing and Development for the YMCA of Northwest Louisiana. And we're here at 318 Latino Studios for Shreveport Bossier, my city, my community, my home. And we're in for a real treat today. Our guest is Lavette Fuller. So Lavette, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Re Jeffrey. Really appreciate it. This is going to be fun, I hope. It I will think. be fun. <laughs> Always fun talking to you. All right, so Lavette, we'll hop in. Um, in my opinion, Lavette, you are one of the top thinkers about community that we have. You see our problems, you see our strengths, and I could talk to you for hours and just be scratching the surface. I'm going to try today at least to hit some of the high points. So let's start here. Um, first, talk to me about sprawl and land use and how the two pertain to this community. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're right. We could be here all day. Um, so land use as a policy term, like just defined as how we use land. It's some people could think of it first from real estate, but it's the decisions that we make for a community for how we want our community to be shaped. And where sprawl comes into that is the growth pattern of a community. Um, a lot of times we think about like bigger cities and in particular European cities where things are very dense. Things go up more than they go out. The sprawl is when things start to go out. And the reason that it can be an issue is that you can spread a community thin where one, like where people are taking up more acreage per person and the more acreage people take up individually, the more expensive it gets per person. Okay. That was concise. Yeah, um, was, that was great. I mean, I'm almost kind of impressed with myself because I could get going on that. So do we have, I mean, I guess to expound on what you just said, do we have from your perspective a sprawl problem and do we have a land use issue yes. here? Yes. We do. I think that we're trying with land use because we have an entire planning department. Now, part of that is because the state requires us to have some sort of planning commission, planning department for every municipality for health, safety, and welfare. Um, however, our population is decreasing and our land area is expanding for our community. When this community started, it was probably like our downtown area, if you can picture it in your head, like the map, you've got downtown, you've got Highland, you've got a little bit of area north of downtown, and then things start to just expand outwards. And we just take in South Highland and Queensboro and Cedar Grove, and we just keep going that way. And so we have way more acres than we did when we first started this community. And now we're seeing this decrease in population. Um, in order to keep the growth pattern and design of neighborhoods that we have, you almost have to keep expanding in order to find revenue to cover your costs. And that's why it's a problem because it's almost like it's an addiction. You know, when people move, they're not being replaced in the middle of the city. So if we, if we had more people moving here and moving to the middle of the city, we might be able to offset some of those expansions, but it wouldn't be enough. And that's part of why it's a problem. Um, right now, this means that fewer people are taking care of way more miles of infrastructure um, under the surface, water, sewer, over the surface, streets. Um, and it means that your police and your fire are having to go further in order to solve issues and to respond to emergencies. And we're paying for all of that on fewer and fewer tax dollars. So what happens is when people move out, we say we need to recapture that revenue by annexing them in. And sometimes developers want their developments to be inside the city because if you're outside of the city and you connect to the city services like water, you pay double the water rate. So you're thinking it's better for that community to be at the normal water rate instead of double it, right? But now you're having to push, you need more energy to push those, those resources out water pressure, that means more pump stations on top of everything else. And now you still have the same number of people covering more land. It's why we're broke. It's the primary reason why we're broke. Well, this just doesn't sound very optimistic. N no, duh. we're going okay, we'll to we'll get back to optimism. Yeah, we will. Okay. Okay. We will. Well, right. we'll, we'll, cover, <laughs> we'll cover a lot of ground today. Good deal. So 
Um, with founding members Tim Wright, Luke Lee, and Chris Lyon, you created Reform Shreveport, whose mission is to build a stronger and more resilient Shreveport by growing a culture of engagement and trust between citizens, businesses, and government. Yes. Re Reform Shreveport has achieved some great things. Um, talk to me about the genesis of Reform, how you all decided to start it, and what the future holds for this important initiative. Thank you. I... I love talking about how we got together. Um, you can thank social media for quite a bit of how we even became friends to start working together. Tim Wright is a young engineer. He moved here to intern for a company, for an engineering firm, to get the hours toward becoming a licensed engineer. And he's on social media looking at the different um, initiatives in our community about walkability, bikeability, and he's participating in those conversations, and this is like 2016, 2017. I get wind of him, um, so does Chris Lyon, who was running Heliopolis at the time, which is something that he, every once in a while, kind of picks back up and is um, a great publication for kind of keeping up with local stuff, arts and culture mostly. Well, there was a charrette. There was a charrette for, which is like a design term for, let's get a group of people together and get ideas for this design. And it was for bike lanes, for this master plan that the, that Caddo Parish Commission had sponsored, thanks to uh, the commissioner at the time, Matthew Lynn. We were all at that meeting with the consultant that was in from Dallas, Bud Melton. And that was the first time that the three of us were in the same room at the same time. And I just kind of pitched an idea of bringing in some thought leaders around planning concepts to Tim and um, Chris. And I think we've been talking to Tim separately and we were all there together at the same time. And Tim pitched back, hey, I think I know just the right person for us to bring in first. And it was Charles Marone who has now become a mentor for us. We brought Chuck. And let me interrupt one sec. So Charles, Charles Marone, Chuck Marone is yes, known towns. for Strong Towns. Correct. And he wrote a book, I believe, yes. called Strong Towns. That's it. And not only did he write a book, but the person who wrote the preface or the forward well, or the, the afterword. The afterword. The afterword was you. Me, yeah. And, he asked um, me to, to write the afterword for his book, um, which is an amazing honor. But before any of that, he came through at our invitation. We had... Um, some great sponsors and supporters at that time that we can still count on. And I think that that's an important thing that I want to speak to you. But when, when Tim reached out and said, hey, I think that this would be a good thing for us to do, my first call, I'm going to go right into it, was um, to Mrs. Paula Hickman, who was the director of Community Foundation at the time. And what was so great there is, we're going back, this is 2016, and I just emailed her and said, hey, do you think you have some time? Or there's someone I want you to meet. We have an idea. She's like, I can see you tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Come by my office. And we got there and we sat down. She's, the first thing she said was, what can I do for you? Like, how can I help you? And she was, she heard the pitch. We want to bring this person in. He talks about things that can help make cities better. We think that this could help Shreveport because we see this connection between walkability, bikeability, making the city the kind of city that we want it to be. And it's not just that it makes things nice. It's that it could be more economically sustainable. She says, count us in. I'll see what I can do to help you out. Um, we'll see if there's any kind of fund that might actually be able to help with this. Then we went to... Um, the Downtown Development Association, we had the same sort of response from Liz Swain, who was familiar with some of his concepts, as well as the person that became our second speaker, Joe Minakazi. Um, from there, we said, well, after Chuck came in, what his biggest takeaway was, or his biggest recommendation to anyone is, do the most good, um, the, that's not him, that's somebody else. It was, Go to where people are struggling and humbly walk with them in their struggle, understand where the hardship is, and do one small thing to alleviate that struggle, and then do it again, and do it again, and keep iterating. And that's what we did. After he left, we were like, well, we can't just bring him in and not do something. What can we do that might actually alleviate a struggle and help us with some goals? And so we started working in the Highland Park. The idea there being... This park should have people, should have a lot of activity, and if the park were doing well, the value of everything around it would appreciate, and more people would see this as a space that they could walk walk in and walk around, and 
and see it as a, a part of making the neighborhood fuck a safer place to travel by foot because the grid is there. Highland is kind of set up to be a perfect neighborhood for walkability and bikeability um, because of the, the trees, the amount of sidewalks, and the proximity of amenities to houses. It's one of the few places in the city that's like that. We're like, you know, this is an area where if you're on foot, it doesn't feel that great to walk around there. And so we started doing cleanups and we named ourselves Reform, meaning for the built environment, like reforming the city. And that's kind of just, that's where it started. That was when we realized that we had something that was, that was beneficial to the city. Our first our first speaker was such a success and we were really excited about what we could do from there. Um, something I'm really proud of with us isn't just that we've been able to help people with learning the vocabulary around planning and how it impacts your day-to-day -day life and how the city could make better choices about the sprawl. We, I'm, and I can brag because I have nothing to do with it except sometimes being the moderator. I'm really proud of the way our, our presentations look. I think that we do, I think we do something a little different than anyone else with the way that we set up our spaces, the production value. I'm really proud of what Luke and Chris in particular are able to do as far as graphic design, lighting, and making things feel like you're not just at another, you're not at just another lecture in a lecture hall, you're at something special. And I think that that does set us apart. And I think that the people who come to our events feel like it's something that's comfortable. It feels like it's a space that cares about people leaning into the information and feeling like they're going to walk away with more than they came in with. And I'm, I am really proud of that. And where is reform today? Like, what do, you, what do you see as the future for it? And for people who are listening today who are like, that's something that I'm really interested in learning more about cool. or I'd like to be a part of. How do people become... So, part of uh, this work that you guys have been doing for many, many years now. Please check out our website, um, reformshreveport.com. We are finally in possession of our 501c3, where we're official. It took us a little while because we were all at different points in our lives, and then I ran off and ran for city council. We all got a little busy doing different things, and it kind of put that on the back burner. Like, we can do the projects, we'll figure the rest of that out. But we are a 501c3. And we are going to continue to have at least one lecture per year, if not more. And we will be doing more projects very soon. It's just a little hot for doing things outside right now. Um, if you check out the website, you can see what we have coming up. You can see our previous projects and you can watch videos from the, the lectures that we've had. And we're um, working out a membership structure. We just introduced a community advisory board of five people that are meant to help us as the executive board kind of stay on track and be accountable and make sure that we're meeting the needs of the community, but also to help us to be accessible because we know that between an engineer and a couple of land use nerds, we can get really technical. And we wanna make sure that we're always going back to the basics of this is approachable information that's important to your day-to-day -day life if you live here and we don't want it to go over people's heads. When people have the vocabulary, they can speak truth to power, and that's our number one goal. Um, the last event that we can sort of say we co-sponsored with the city of Shreveport was bringing Joe Minakazi in for his second, um, his second visit to Shreveport. But on this visit, he was presenting a product for Shreveport of our land use in metrics in 3D graphs that were mapped out across a GIS database of our city map showing block by block where we had more money coming in than revenue going out. And it's a series of maps that are actually interactive with a GIS platform, Esri, to where the city engineers, the Metropolitan Planning Commission, um, community development can all go in, click on a parcel of land and see the productivity of what's how much revenue is coming in in value per acre terms. Like think of Think of productivity like um, crop usage, a crop yield, a crop that needs a lot of water and a lot of effort and costs a lot of money to grow and then ends up being a very, producing something very cheap. That's like a low value per acre versus something that has a higher demand, is easier to grow, doesn't cost a lot of money to grow, but it has a high demand and can be really like more productive and more valuable. 
that's what we're looking at the city. So you can think of our downtown as being a higher yield and like the areas that kind of spread thin and further out are a lower yield until you get to areas like Provenance, which has a diverse retail and residential and it's fairly dense and it's very new. It's got a fairly, it's fairly productive. It's covering its own costs, but not necessarily covering everything else around it. And that's kind of the problem that the whole city has is we need to look at how to make things more productive. So the conversations that we're having right now, and we just did this recently at Seventh Tap, we got a group of people together. We posted on social media, hey, we're going to just kind of have like a little meet and greet to talk. And we talked about those concepts. And I think we'd like to start doing some community meetings across different neighborhoods to see where people are and what would benefit them as far as the reform concepts the strong towns concepts, and if they're interested in partnering with us for projects within their communities. Wonderful. Yeah. I think you guys are doing incredible stuff. Thank you. It's exciting. And it's exciting to know that we're, we're hitting a position where we all have a little bit of time to dedicate to making things a little bit more consistent after getting, I won't say distracted, but I mean, I've had my career changes and my political aspirations Tim has a one-year-old daughter, and I think when you look at things like that, Luke Lee has a son that's about eight years old right now and gets into everything and recently sprained his arm um, and has been walking off the cast. Like, we're all, and, and Chris, with his real job, travels so, so much. So when we're checking calendars, it gets a little difficult sometimes to see where we can pin in a place to do strategic planning. Um, have the meetings we need, set those goals, and then most importantly, get back with the public and do what we want to get done. But I think that we're about to hit a good stride. Great. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. So one, one area where I know you've been most passionate is trying to make our community a more welcoming environment for entrepreneurs. My question is, what are, what are some of the areas where we're currently falling short in quote-unquote being open for business? I think I love that question, even though it might be kind of weird to answer. Um, what I hear often is that there's no one place to go to, to get started with the city. Before I get into the technical part of what the city can do better, in general, when people bring new ideas to Shreveport, the general public kind of scratches their head and is like, why would you want to do that here? Or that'll never work here. But a lot of the things that we want here, we travel for and we enjoy those things when we travel, so why not here, right? I think that entrepreneurs anywhere need a community that's going to buy in, that's going to lean into a new concept and be optimistic and supportive. Like, that's, that's sometimes missing here. Some people are able to kind of mine that and like harness it within like their sphere of influence and it can grow incrementally from there. I think of, um, I'm going to start with food. It's going to be food. I'll think of fat calf. Fat calf started with secret dinners while the chef was working other places, moves away, comes back more secret dinners, a food trailer while still doing these things that cultivate, um, an appetite for a more complicated menu. And then the food trailer, grows and then they've got a brick and mortar and they've got a steady a st like a steady group of people coming through there and it's always busy and it was in the area that I represented on the city council so I could not be prouder but it took those incremental steps of kind of training palettes and creating enthusiasm and creating a culture of support I don't think they could have just like dropped in on day one um, serving up um, escargot the way that they do. And people would have been like, yeah, like, I'm just like, let's just go get like, we're just going to go have escargot and this chicken tagine that they have over there today. And it's going to be great. And I think they would have been empty. I think people would have been confused, but they cultivated an audience. Um, if you're coming in as a young entrepreneur with an idea and someone just dropped you off blind in Shreveport, there should be someone that can tell you, hey, this is a community that you're going to have to like train to love you. They're going to buy into it and they're going to want you to win, but they need to understand what you're doing first. 
And that's before you ever even think about what it takes to get all of your paperwork, dealing with the city, finding investors, any of that stuff. It's just the general attitude of who in the city actually wants you to win and, and how, and how can you win? Um, and it just doesn't always feel like it's there. And it's not obvious that it's there until you find those people. I don't know if when you were Googling me, if you found the article I did for Heliopolis called the 1% problem. Mm -mm. I watched the first couple of years of give for good with the community foundation and saw, um, I watched the numbers, like the individual donors, like the number of donors coming in. And my theory had been for a while, there's like only a small group of people in Shreveport that support everything. They go to the farmer's market, they're season ticket holders to the Strand, they support Cyport, the opera, the ballet, um, and they're probably the same people supporting Give for Good. And I was right. Like by the numbers to the population, 1% of people are the ones that are contributing and they always seem a little spread thin. Like you go, if you don't go, you, it's not even just that you fear that you're missing out, you fear that things won't succeed if you don't leave your house. And I wrote about it. I was like, you know, by the numbers, like not enough of us are participating in all of the great things we have. And we can't just sustain all of this on 1%. Your entrepreneurs are feeling that too, right? On the other side of it is we have these great resources like EAP, BRF, um, NLEP. I'm, I'm doing alphabet soup now. Um, the Entrepreneurial Accelerator. Um, Cohab. Cohab. Now we've got Office Hub. You've got these great things, the business um, incubator at Southern. Are we marketing those things enough that the people who need to know they exist have access to them? And when they do get to them, are those, are those mechanisms able to walk them through the city when it's time for them to apply for licenses, if they're building out, like to get all of their occupancy taken care of, if they need zoning, like, there's a lot to do and it can often feel like the person behind a desk at city hall is taking pleasure in sending you away to do another thing. Oh, well you did this, but now we need you to, we need you to jump through this other hoop and this hoop is fiery. All right. Well, you jump through the fiery one. Now you're back. The next one is covered in blades and they're just, it, it feels like they could have just given you a list. Like, could you have just given me a checklist so I'd know where to go without having to keep coming back to find out that I still don't have everything I need? I think that if people don't have the grit, they just wouldn't make it through. And often what happens is they just say, I'm going to go across the river. And we don't want them to do that. We want them to be here. And we want, we want to be able to work with the other side of the river with Bozier. But you don't want people to have to say, it's too hard over here. I'm going over there. Like if so we could, we're talking about we're talking about the NPC, we're NPC, talking about the city. engineering, business occupancy, revenue, everything that you need to do in order to get your startup started if you're going into like a brick and mortar. Um, I hear often that when you go to the desk anywhere in Bozier, if you just go in and ask someone, hey, we want to do X, Y, and Z whether they know how to make it happen or not, they lead with yes. And in Shreveport, we tend to lead with, I don't know. I don't know if you can do that. So people are saying, why don't you have all the things that they have on Barksdale Boulevard in the West, in, you know, on the West Bank? Like, why don't you have that? Or in the East Bank? Why don't we have the East Bank stuff? It's walkable, it's bikeable, you can go throw axes, you can go to two breweries that have like really good food and it's all like right there together you can go hear a band play in, in the back of one of the restaurants like why don't y'all have that in Shreveport and it's like well that's a great question and how much of the answer comes down to if someone comes forward and says there's a space right here I'd like to do something can I and our answer back is I don't know that's that's kind of that's it like if you want to see this city continue to have people raise their families here, they first have to be able to have families here. And a lot of that is just having a place to meet someone that you might want to start a family with. Like that means having more to nightlife than just an, a, a club. You need, you need places to go. Like there are so many places that we hear about in other cities that people enjoy like Topgolf. 
adults like arcade like things. We need we need activities that people can participate in and get to know each other without there always being just sort of like this late night kind of atmosphere. And a lot of the things that people want to bring here that they have a hard time getting through, getting across the threshold are those things. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of grandparents are here, like people who want their grandchildren to be raised in Shreveport, like their kids leave for college and they're afraid that they're not going to come back. And I'm like, well, it's up to you to help us, like help entrepreneurs that want to bring us cool stuff. Cause like the kids want to be able to take their other friends out to do fun things. It's, it's not rocket surgery, right? Yeah. yeah. You know? No, it makes total sense to yes, me. Yes, I said rocket surgery. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lavette. So one of the things we've discussed on this podcast is our struggles as a community to, to define ourselves, to know who we are, and to be proud of what we have and what we can be. So my question for you is, how do you see us, or in other words, what do you think our identity is as a community? <sighs> I talk about this a lot. Um, one way to think about who you are is what you do. And I think that we've been in like a teenage navel gaze for a while. And what you would probably tell a teenager that's contemplating their navel is to go out and do something. What do we do? And what do we do well? And we were so strongly associating ourselves with what we did through oil and gas and through manufacturing that we are kind of in a funk right now about it. But what we forget is that our history is that we are a river city. We don't like to think of it that way, but river cities are kind of rough and tumble. Like there's a rough and tumble kind of undercurrent to this place that we kind of want to suppress. Um, and I think that the more we know about the history of this place, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the more we can, if not celebrate all of it, I think those discussions lead somewhere. I think that we are people who love our faith, we love our families, we love our neighbors. I think that we are creative people. I think that we um, are warm people. I think that those are hard things to turn into a catchy like tagline for a community though. I don't think we need to worry about that. I think we just need to exist. I think that we need to do things. I think that every time we start worrying about our identity as a community, we should go for a walk. You know, we should get a new hobby or we should get better at an old hobby, right? And if, and if I'm this community, I know one thing that we're really good at is eating, you know? We're food, we're gospel, we're country, we're rap. Like. Maybe that last one's not one that everyone loves so much, but we are a cultural place. Like, we are performers. Um, we have we have more to offer than the things that we used to build. And I think that we could build more things in the future if we get back in touch with being the best neighbors, if we get back in touch with being the best supporters of the things that are already happening around us. We're medicine, for sure, you know? But... Again, you can't package that up and put a bow on it and expect people to understand it. But I think that's kind of okay. I think that right now we probably are just in sort of this like weebly wobbly sort of a place about who we are. But I think we need to do some looking back. I think that we need to look at our architecture, understand why we have the beautiful facades downtown that we do. Because at some time and place we had wealth from oil and gas and everything else that we did. We put that money into good design for a reason. We have a perfect town square main street downtown. Have you ever like really thought about that? Get to the top of the Texas street bridge and look down to the church. We have a courthouse in the middle of our town square, but that's a common, like a, a common thing really in Texas. But we have this beautiful thing that we're underutilizing. Part of who we are is the things that we've built up that make this, that shape the look of this place and shape the atmosphere of it. Um, and then you go back like around to Texas Avenue and we've kind of taken all that for granted and we've let it kind of disintegrate. Um, if I want to think about this community and what we represent, I'm going to look at the history. I'm going to look at the significance of the different cemeteries that we have and the people that are buried there. I'm going to think about what um, 
Hadi Ledbetter means to us. I'm going to think about what Sam Cooke means to us. I'm going to think about what Little Union Church means to us. It all happens. You can't erase it. You shouldn't erase it. But if we want to have some identity that we can actually say is shaped and that we can get down to like one paragraph or so, I think that we have to start like taking those tours and like reconciling all of that history. And, and then we'll know like, okay, like maybe what we need right now is a gospel festival that travels to all the historic black churches that were a part of the civil rights movement in this community. And maybe as a part of that, there should be discussions about those contributions. Maybe what we need is more oral histories with the people who were pioneers of that era that are still with us. And it's not enough to record it. We need to make sure people are listening to it, like really taking it in. Um, I know that that's not like a concise and succinct sort of an answer, but I'm, I refuse to have one right now. I worry about our tourism bureau and our chamber of commerce when they're always like, we're just searching for identity. Like, I don't need you to do that. I need you to just realize that like, we are here. We are a beautiful place that has some amazing attributes and that we need, regardless of if we know where we are, you know, right now, like we don't, we're not going to eat, pray, love our way out of it in another place. We just need to be able to say, here's what we have. And we need to celebrate more of what we have instead of lamenting what we don't have. And what we do have is waterways, amazing trees, amazing architecture, amazing people who have contributed a lot to culture, to intellect. And we just need to be like, yes, like this is who we are. And it's not going to be a paragraph. It's going to be a book for a little while. We need to be okay with that. Beautiful. <laughs> you, you think so? I, mean, I do. I do. <laughs> God, you keep it coming all day. I love it. All right. So from, you already touched on this a little bit, but from 2018 to 2022, you were in the trenches. Not that you're not any longer, not that you weren't before, but you were clearly in the trenches serving our city council for District B. Um. And last year, you ran for mayor in the 2022 Shreveport mayoral race. And one of your campaign sayings, I don't know if saying is the right word, was, we can believe in Shreveport. Yes. So my question is, as you look around our community currently, what are, in addition to everything you've said, what are some of the things that concern you the most? Um, it's a scarcity mindset. And it's... The same thing with entrepreneurs where it's like, where are the people that believe in you and are going to like support and lean into that support? We have this scarcity mindset. Which that means what? Define means a scarcity mindset. We don't think that there's enough for everyone to have theirs. Like everyone can't, everyone can't be at the table. There's not enough to go around. And when there's an abundance mindset where there's enough for everyone you behave differently. Now, if you're in a, just in so your- So a scarcity mindset would sort of be counter to a collaborative mindset or right. a collaborative It's spirit. gonna be more competitive, we're rivals. There's not enough for us to both okay. sit at the table and work together. I've got mine, you've got yours, and there's no way that we can meet in the middle and have more for everyone. And, and then here's the opposite, right? If you're in your household and you're like actually experiencing scarcity, this is the other side of this. We have a lot of families, too many families in this community that are experiencing scarcity. And if you've got this big picture mindset of there's not enough for everyone and inside your household, you're really actually experiencing scarcity. There's no one that you see outside of your household that is going to be willing to help you make those ends meet. That creates desperation, right? Now, I could do an entire talk about the issues around scarcity and trauma for children in this community, but, and we can start with the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like if you're, if you're not clothed and fed and sheltered, your mind cannot be at ease to go to the next thing, which is learning. And then we'll never get to self-actualization, right? Okay, adults feel that too. So right now in Shreveport, we've got a lot of people that are probably underemployed or unemployed or they're, live, they're, they're working poor. So you're going, you're, you need more and maybe what you need is training. 
if you are already kind of suffering from not having your basic needs met and you're trying to take care of a child having that same deficit, you don't have anything left over to get on a computer at home and teach yourself to code, right? And you're probably living in a neighborhood that is suffering. Like everywhere you, you look, there's like examples of decline and decay that further beats down your mentality. Your mindset just gets that much more warped. I bring this up as kind of like a thing that's hovering over the crime issues that we have. It's not the only part of it, but it's a big part of it. Our mindset on how to how to handle our crime issues is kind of a single focus on incarceration and on responding to crime. And we're not going to get out of this rut with just one strategy. I think that um, awareness for the entire community on what kids are going through, there are a lot of people that are doing good things. Like, let's go back to let's celebrate what we have. Okay, there's some people who have been through a few different workshops and lectures and trainings on things like adverse childhood experiences, the effects of trauma on children and how we build resilience in those same children, how we build re resilience in the family, in the household, so parents can be better parents to their children, so the children can have the best opportunities and now everyone's contributing to society. That's a long-term conversation. We know that we can put a whole lot of investment into zero to five years old to make sure that those kids have the best opportunities to advance past college, right? It's zero to five. It's happening. You all are part of that with the why. This is awesome. How are we intervening on the kids right now that are between the ages of 11 and 17 who desperately need our help? and her, are being kind of interrupted while their brains are developing and their decision-making power is limited. And they've got these bad actors coming in and saying, this is all you'll ever be because this is where you're from. How do we interrupt that? How do we, how do we interrupt kids who are already being deemed ungovernable? We can't just give up on them because then the cycle just continues. And I think that I can sit here and open Pandora's box of all of the issues, and that's not what I want to see. What I want to see is the people who know more about it than I do from all these different vantage points get into a room with even better scientists from somewhere else that have actually done things that work in other communities. And I want to see us put that to work. I want to see us do more about the awareness that we have about where we are, where we are on poverty, where we are on people that have a scarcity mindset on a micro level and a macro level so that we can overcome both those things together. If you have a community that is kind of in a, what's for me is for me kind of a mindset, here's an example. When the power goes off across the entire city because of a massive storm, and all anyone can do is complain on social media from their cell phones that they have lost power. At some point, when do we look up and say, I think I better check on my neighbor who's 80 years old and also doesn't have air and is going to be more vulnerable than me. Some people might be doing that, but they're not saying it on social media. If I Google Shreveport on that day and look through what's being said on Twitter, on Facebook, I'd be worried because I see so many people that are like just worried about what it does for their own discomfort. In some cases, well, if you're trapped in your house and there's a live wire, you have you can't get out and you're begging for Swepco or whoever to come and just deal with that so you can escape your house. That's one thing. But where are the people that are saying, I have a generator, I have air, y'all can come over here. I saw finally people saying, We've got a freezer full of meat that's starting to thaw out. We're going to put the grill out on the block, and we're going to have a block party. Everyone bring everything that they need to cook. Abundant mindset. But I saw way more, oh, my gosh. This is ridiculous. This is so, it's, I'm miserable, and I'm hot. I'm like, yeah, we're all miserable and hot. Like, what can we do right now? If I'm going to be miserable and hot, I might as well go be miserable and hot. 
at the shelter passing out ice or food or knocking doors to check on neighbors to see if, if they know where they can go to get to escape this, to get relief from it. I think that we're lucky that we didn't have more illnesses than we had based on what the paper has written. And I think it is for the few people that really did kind of reach out beyond their own discomfort. Um, I don't want to be down on my neighbors right now. And I don't mean it that way. Cause I think that a lot of people had that initial reaction, complained about it and then came back around and said, you know what? Let me just take a beat. Let me figure out what to do to get out of this. I'll put my own mask on first and make sure that I'm going to be okay. I'll hydrate and then I'll go check on somebody else. I will pick up the phone and see if someone else is okay. I think there is some of that. But we have to shorten those initial reactions of mine, me, miserable, and think we're all in this together. There are a lot of people that had no idea that the outage was as widespread as it was. Like, this wasn't just your neighborhood. It was literally the entire city. When we had the snow power outage, all of that, not even power, water, and Reform Shreveport did this huge water map for that where you could see exactly what was why it was so dire in the areas that the city even thought, oh, the water is back on over there, we'll be fine. The scarcity in that instance, in particular in District B, there were people living in subsidized housing who had no water and had a lot of children and had lost the wherewithal to figure out how to deal with the circumstance. Some people like, oh, the, the water might, the pipes might freeze, let me fill a tub and then let me put snow on reserve for when that runs out. And let me make sure I've got enough bottled water. Then we're running out of everything. We did have great volunteers who were able to step in and make sure that people had resources. But it took the switch just about a hair too long to turn on in order to make sure we were distributing those things in a good way. But I did feel phone calls from people who had literally, they were like, I don't know what to do. But think about this, Jeffrey, when every day you're living like down to the wire in circumstances like that, you don't need one more thing to break. And when the entire infrastructure breaks and falls apart like that, you don't know what to do. I, 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 don't, I, I don't know that we all have awareness of how, how resourceful you're able to be when that's not your day to day. And I don't think we realize how many people in this community are at that point in their day-to-day. -day. And if those children of those families are being targeted for recruitment for crime, the money looks too good to pass up. And we can't just think that it's going to be enough to lock everybody up and think that's going to solve the problem. That's that's it. Man, that was long-winded. <laughs> that was great. It was great. Well, my... I hope I brought it all back full circle, but like, because no, it's, it's a lot. I, I'm really good at chasing squirrels. I call it the squirrel <laughs> identification program. You know, like there are no squirrels. They're all invisible. They're just distractions. But I promise you I could do like a children's book of like all the different types of squirrels that I've chased. Purple, flying, unicorn squirrels, all of it. Okay, that was the levity we needed. I was with you, though. Okay, thank I, I you. I stayed with you. <laughs> okay, awesome. <laughs> All right, so my, my last formal question is um, kind of on the flip side of that. Just as you look around, in addition to what you've already said, what are some of the things that make you optimistic about the future of this community? Oh, man. So there are people who do show up, right? Like there are people that show up. There are volunteer groups that are trying to do the work. They just need a little bit more help all the time. But we have some really wonderful local entrepreneurs. We do have these groups that are trying to help us diversify our portfolio. We have these economic development groups that are trying to do their part. We have these cultural groups that are trying to do their part. We have some amazing people in different places, like the arts community. I look at the people in our arts community, the painters, the sculptors, the creators, and I see how they come together. I see them support each other. I see how sensitive they are to the critiques when the rest of the city is like, like we did the bridge, we did Marshall Street underpass. When, when it was being done, there was like this kind of negativity about it. And I saw like, all these sweet artists just feeling so down that what they want to do is like 
spread love and self-expression to make things beautiful so that people can feel good. And it makes such a big difference, right? And I see them coming together, reminding themselves, no, we, there's a power in what we do and they lean on each other and they support each other. And that th I think that's something that's so special to us. I think we have a great music community. I think that we have, um, a great food community. They're the same way the chefs in this community, they all, they, when I go to a, a local restaurant and I see at the next table, another one of my favorite like chefs or restaurant owners, and it's like, well, I'm eating where you eat. I know I'm getting something good. And I, I posted a couple of weeks ago, I went to Louder Bakery. Um, I always kind of joke that I'm, I'm going to start a class action suit against Sarah Louder for all of us that have clothes that don't fit the way that they used to because of the carbohydrates that she's pushing on us because we're not choosing, like we don't have a choice in the matter. But I walked by, I went in to get um, one of my favorite pastries. Someone had written me and said, they have your favorite pastry this week. It's a churro croissant. So I went in to get one. And so she was there and her husband was there. And Gabriel Balderas from Zazul and Cabo Verde was there. And I was like, I'm going to take a picture because it's so nice to see the support. Right. And this was like after the week long power outage. And it was like, how did y'all fare? And like we had a generator. We didn't lose anything. Thank goodness. But we did close so that we could kind of deal. Like this is, this is good news, you know, but like, that to me, just that support is something that I think that we could see across every other sort of genre or whatever of this community. Like there are people like Ben Whalen who has clean slate botanicals. He's in Andrus, he's in the Andrus Arts Center um, downstairs. The storefront that he has is so beautiful. Like it's an incremental step toward him having like a, a freestanding brick and mortar, but he's in here as an entrepreneur. They make everything there. He sells there and on the internet and goes to the different markets to sell every fixture in that place. Just about like all of his shelving units were designed by Luke Lee from reform Shreveport. Like he's got his warehouse, like workshop in the back of Andrus. So it's like, one-stop shop, right? Like you've got a designer who can prefab and make these amazing things. And he's created this wonderful design that's in the front of the space for this amazing local entrepreneur that's making these beautiful like beauty creams and candles and things that smell so amazing. And that's someone that I see who's got support in this community because people have no idea how many like blind label, like private label, I mean, like candles he's doing. You can go into a few different shops and it might not say clean slate on it, something else. He made those candles. And you're like, that's wicked resourceful. And that's wicked support to know that like another local arts and gift store is carrying something that you're making for them. And it's giving you that much more of the market to like, to supply. And he's not the only one. But when I see us able to support like that, it makes me optimistic. When I see that there are um, so many people that are doing things like that, when I see the Milam Street Kitchen Incubator, you've got um, Vegans on the Run that's there, and a couple of, there's um, a few, I, I hate to like not remember everyone I want to shout out, because the chefs that are there, like one day I went there because my favorite my favorite made-up holiday is Pi Day, March 14th. And I had been at MS Kick for another meeting, and I asked the director, I was like, hey, who would you recommend? I need to get up. I want to get a savory pie for Pi Day for my town hall that I'm having. And she was like, he makes, like, one of the chefs there makes a crawfish pie. And, like, I rolled up on him, and I'm like, I heard you make this. Can you do one for me for tomorrow? He's like, yeah, I'll deliver it. I got you. Like, it's great. And it was so delicious. And I'm sorry I don't remember his name right now. You'll have to add, like, an aside, like, later. I'll, I'll write you back, okay. and you can just add at the end. This was who made that crawfish pie. I'll do but, it. But, like, for her to know and be like, before I can even finish, like, you should just get this. And I'm like, really? Like, I can support this. And then for that same event... Grant Knuckles brought an apple pie from Jacqueline's for the event. And it even had like pie, like, you know, the symbol for pie on it. And I'm like, I got an apple pie pie. And that kind of enthusiasm to just participate in something that 
one was an information day and it was at Cyport. Cause like, if you're going to talk math and science or if you're going to celebrate a math and science holiday, do it at your local science museum, but people show up and they want to participate and you want to do something goofy. And because it's pie day, you want to have pie and they lean in like, What's not to love about that? I mean, that's just like making it about me and people actually gratifying me. I get that. But at the same time, it's like, how often are we leaning in to something that someone just kind of popped up and said, I think I want to do something that sounds a little wild. What do you think? And someone does say, yeah, let's, let's try it. Like some of the best things that happen in this community happen because we do that. And outside of Local entrepreneurs, like the, especially in the food arena, people who have taken over brands, like Andrew and Grant taking over Jacqueline's, like it was a brand that is a legacy here, and they stepped up and said, "Yes, like we want to be a part of that." Damian Chapman stepping up, like I don't know if anyone's ever asked him, "Did you have any intention of carrying on your dad's legacy before you were put in a position where you had to?" You've grown the Freeman and Harris brand to the lake, to this grand space? Like, did anyone ever say, is this really what you want to be doing with your life right now? You're a young man, like you could be living anywhere. But he took up that mantle and we're all better for it. One of my favorite pictures of my um, dad and my uncles was actually taken at Freeman and Harris. At Freeman and Harris, I saw it like just the other day, it's like a little black, black and white Polaroid and they're all in their suits standing by this back wall. And I'm like, they look so cool. <laughs> and I think about that, I'm like, you know, that building might not be where this is, but that legacy has carried on. And those are the things that make me feel really, really good about this place. Um, it's not all food. I promise I do more than that. We've got fashion. We've got people like Katie Larson, who has Agora Borealis. You're promoting, and she and Cassie Stone, they're promoting local and Louisiana artists and jewelers and these like you're getting gifts and clothes fashion all of these things and it's not you walk into these spaces and we would say something like it doesn't even feel like you're in Shreveport anymore no it feels like the most elevated Shreveport it feels like you're in an elevated space where someone took time and care to say you deserve to have a nice and special experience in this community, right? Um, I did a, I did write about the EAP for Shreveport Magazine back when that was still being published, and I got to sit down with Dave Smith and to learn about how they're trying to help build capacity in entrepreneurs. And when you look at the portfolio, a diverse portfolio of entrepreneurs that are in different spaces, like. It could be something that is tangential to oil and gas. It could be someone that's making dance products, dance clothing. Like there's so many different people who have benefited from going through the EAP to build something that they can actually do in Shreveport, right? Like they're creating and building revenue in this community. And I think that that's what, that's what lets me believe in Shreveport. I think that more is more. And the more we celebrate those types of things, the more of those things we will have and the more momentum we will have around those things. Um, one other is a friend who works for BRF. And a few years ago, there was this book called Our Towns. And they read this book and then bought like a hundred copies of it and wrote this letter and basically mailed them out across Shreveport to people that he thought would benefit from it and was like, we don't ever have to book club it. I just want you to read this book and know that I thought about you as someone who benefit from it and just pass it on to someone else. It's now a documentary and it's a beautiful storytelling about mid-sized cities in, in America that have struggled and have found their way to like a higher point on a climb up, or they feel like maybe they're at a point where they've got momentum to be steady and they can celebrate their wins and they can look around their community and say, I'm really proud of what we have. I'm really proud of my community and how we have fought past our struggles and worked past our struggles to have momentum around awesome things. And 
stories like that just make me feel so much optimism about what we could do if we just said, I believe in this place and we can have nice things and let's just keep putting our heads together to push through. If they can do it in like Sioux Falls or Charleston, West Virginia, there's no reason why we can't do it in Shreveport. And so, yeah, that's, that's more of me rambling about stuff because you ask open-ended questions and said that I could talk as long as I wanted. <laughs> and, and, and I will jump in and I'm going to come back to you, but I will say I, I read Our Town. Uh, Brad did not send me a copy, although his little brother and I are best friends and he should have, but he didn't. <laughs> um, but I read it, and it maybe five years ago or whatever, and it's certainly one of the things I've read in the last five or ten years that's had the greatest impact on me. So... Um, just, um, so I'm uh, glad to know I'm condone, not alone in that. Condoning what you said yes. and, <laughs> and telling people out there, if you haven't read it, highly endorse it and yes. recommend going to pick up a copy. But coming back to you, is there any, like I said at the very beginning, I mean, we could talk for hours and just scratch the surface, but I'm happy if those were just my kind of set questions. Is there anything I didn't touch on or anything I didn't cover or anything you would like to talk about today. Uh, That's this a is terrible. Have you not been listening? I, I know. It is terrible to say, here's a microphone. Like, what do you like? Just go off. Like, no, don't do that. I'll say that um, where I kind of live, and the things that make me really, really happy are about urban planning. I, I didn't see that coming, but like how I got here, we, I didn't really get into that. And I would like to kind of mention it. When I moved back from San Francisco at the end of 2004, I had been out there for about four and a half years. And what I recognized was that cities that I've traveled to, and every time you come back to Shreveport, you think, what makes these places special? And a lot of it is around the built environment. And what I thought, like New Orleans, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, that it was the historic buildings that made those places special, that gave them their identity. That's a part of it. And when I came back, I recognized that Texas Avenue, which had been a place that was like something that I kind of was in love with the potential of when I was in college. Um, David Nelson had recently moved back to Shreveport while I was at Centenary. And he was this architect and this really clever, interesting guy who was a filmmaker. And he did such neat things. And between classes, I would go over to his place on Texas Avenue with a friend and we would just annoy him and keep him from doing work. Like we we're enabling procrastination and we were completely happy to do it. And he let us look at models and kind of talk to us about his big ideas. And when I got back, I kind of felt like we could have been putting more attention into building these beautiful places where we had things that identified us through the facades, the history of it, the architecture as a place that was special, a place that was unique. And we still weren't doing it. And then the more I learned about Texas Avenue, I learned that that really would have been considered like the Black Wall Street. It was an area that was ethnically diverse, but during segregation, it was absolutely where black people shopped, right? But you had this beautiful area that was ethnically diverse and that had so much vibrancy in life. And it seemed like we were letting all of that kind of go. Calanthian Temple, Antioch, it was the avenue. I got involved with historic preservation because I felt like our sense of place as a community needed to be attached more strongly to the history of the buildings that we had and preserving that, not to preserve a time capsule, but to create a place that felt like somewhere special to be, somewhere that existed so that you could walk around and feel like you were somewhere unique that wanted you to be a part of it. From there, fast forward to actually meeting someone that worked in planning who had come to Shreveport to be the administrator for our master plan. Her name was Dara Sanders. We became friends basically because she came to the library to tell us about the master plan, to show us the binders that we were going to have at the libraries and say, because I was working at the library at the time, she says, um, you're, we want people to be able to have easy access to these things. So we're going to have them at each library. We're going to post these maps and the unified development code planning is going to start happening. Like, okay, that sounds really interesting. I'd been to some of the master plan meetings before she came to town. I'm like, this is so cool. We became friends because one day I was walking into the downtown library through the alley, but I'm, I'm walking down Marshall Street to tuck, tuck through the alley to go into work. And she's coming out of Government Plaza across the way. And I go, Dara? 
Sanders? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm Levette. You spoke to us at the library. We're going to be friends. She said, okay. And we started having like weekly dinners with a group of friends. And what would happen is everything on the table started becoming a part of a map, like a 3D diagram of the city of Shreveport. And she was explaining to me how the code informed the decisions we were making, but also what we said we wanted in the master plan. So in our master plan, we said that we wanted to start being a place that had more walkability, that had more vibrancy in our downtown, that didn't sprawl so much. I ended up being on the master, oh, not the master plan, but I ended up being appointed to the MPC um, board a little bit after she left. But basically what happened is I realized that it's not just the aesthetic of a historic building, it's the scale. It's the scale and it's the setback from the street that gives you a sense of place. Like there are design elements that are meant to make you feel safer and less exposed or more exposed. There are things that buildings can do that cause the traffic around them to slow down. There are just little things that we can have that create environments that are more welcoming, that make people feel happy. And it all started with me thinking that we could do more with Texas Avenue. And then it's become a thing where like half of everything I read is about urban planning. If there's another book that I could bring up right now, it would be Happy Cities. I've read it twice and I'm going to read it again because reading about what makes cities happy makes me feel so good. And knowing that some of these decisions are so small, but can make such a big difference to people wanting to be a part of your community. Um, the other part of it being the more I learned about the vocabulary that I mentioned earlier, we have issues that come about that cause a lot of friction in a community. One is liquor stores. Another is like environmental things, like where industrial sites go, rock crushers, even temporary borrow pits where we, we dig up the dirt to take to a highway site, things that create dust in a neighborhood, things that bring noxious odors to a neighborhood or things that bring just like an unwanted element, like the liquor stores, or sometimes it's like, well, maybe it's a funeral home. These rezoning things, when people know about them and have the time to go to the meetings in mass, they can be a voice for their community that can stop those things in their tracks. We used to have this sort of thing, not just in Shreveport, but across the country that was kind of like, if you had the influence in the community, you could pretty much get your way. We've tried to democratize that by making these elements a little bit more open to the public, but they're not still that open to the public because one, people don't understand what it is. They don't understand that they have a voice in those things and they can't get off work at three o'clock to make it to the meeting. So it's kind of like still, whoever has the most opportunity to show up can influence the conversation and then later people are like, why is that going there? I didn't know that was happening. Who thought it would be a good idea to put a donut shop right there on King's Highway, right? That one ended up not being as bad as people thought it would because the traffic hasn't been that bad. And that was a, an owner that actually tried to like match aesthetics with brick and everything to kind of offset the fact that it was a chain restaurant. And that's a rare thing that happens here as well. He had support. He had, he had more support than people detracting from it when it was going on, but then after protests. When people can tell truth to power because they have the vocabulary, your elected officials can't just brush you aside. They can't just say, it's complicated. Just let us do what we need to do. They can't say that to you and you can come in and say, I know what's allowed in a B1 or a B2 or commercial one or commercial two. I know that these are contributing elements and that the master plan says that we want this area to stay just like it is. We said that we wanted there to be light amenities that were good for a neighborhood that we could walk to. We never said that we wanted you to put something this big and this massive that would bring this much more traffic to this area. We don't want this. You're undeniable when you can do that. And that's not just a skill that people like nerds like me need to be able to have. It's the reason that Reform Shreveport happened. And frankly, it's the reason people wanted me to run for District B is because I was already doing that work and already kind of being like, this is important, y'all. Let me give you the Schoolhouse Rock version of why you need to show up at this meeting. Oh, wow, this really does make a difference. And then when people show up and they're able to move the needle in a way that's more favorable to them, they go, wait a minute, 
when I show up, it actually does matter and we do get results. I'm going to do more of that. And frankly, it's the only thing that's ever made a difference outside of just the actual vote, paying attention to those things and being a part of like a small group of people who I'm like paraphrasing Margaret Mead now. The only thing that's ever made a difference in the world is a small group of people who are willing to like step up and do what needs to be done to make a difference. So I guess I could just leave you with that. I've rambled enough. No, it was beautiful. <laughs> it was great. It's always great to have the opportunity to sit down with you. And like I said at the beginning, uh, I know you're someone that's out there that's looking out at our community, trying to figure out how we can have the best place that we can. And I so appreciate you and Look, all that you do. I appreciate the opportunity and I want to congratulate you for taking on doing a podcast like this. I think it means a lot for our community to see that someone's trying to encapsulate what we're all about. So thank you. Of course. Thanks a lot. Good to have you.